Welcome to Hidden Grooves, uh, where we bring you the deep cuts in music, art, and culture. My guest today is Van Duren. Uh, he's synonymous with the 70s Memphis power pop scene, uh, playing with the likes of Chris Bell and Jody Stevens from Big Star. Uh, and he went on to record two uh, of the great albums from the late 70s called Are You Serious and Idiot Optimism. And both of those are available on Omnivore Records. And he's still releasing music and playing live around Memphis. Um, and this is my talk with Van Duren. I uh, hope you really enjoy it. All right. Hey, Van. Uh, thanks so much for chatting with me today. I really appreciate it. Uh, big fan of your music, as many people are nowadays. That You've been kind of you've had a resurgence of your career and your music. And uh, you've talked a lot about the 70s music and what you're doing now. But I'd love to talk about your childhood and how you got into music. Um, I know... Uh, we were just talking before uh, you said your parents both sang in church. Um, were there records around the house besides the AM radio that, uh, that turned you on to music too? Well, yeah, they had a small record collection. It was basically, you know, uh, stuff like Bing Crosby and, you know, uh, stuff from, you know, my parents' youth, yeah. you know, uh, uh, stuff from the, you know, 1940s and, 50s you know so pop popular music you know yeah uh big big band stuff but there wasn't a lot of that we basically we had the radio on or more likely the television so um got it uh and they sang around the house but i mean it was uh, more like a casual thing you know uh-huh. uh my mother actually as a teenager sang on the radio performed on a radio program during world war ii uh, to raise money for uh troops you know, oh, uh, and cool. um, as an amateur, yeah, you know, uh, program called Young America Sings. It was a national program, and they would go to each each major city and do a live broadcast. You know, kind of a touring thing. So that's cool. She did that a couple of times, but she never followed up on it. You know, yeah. she didn't have any interest in it really. I guess. Yeah. Did you have siblings? That. Um... Yeah, I have a younger brother and two younger sisters. Oh, cool. Okay. So was there any cross-pollination in terms of musical tastes in your family? Like you picked up some stuff from your brother and sister or vice versa? Um, well, you know, I, they were uh, just a few years behind me. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, I was, although I will say that the, my sisters, even though they were younger, they were the first ones to buy uh, or to get my, talk my mother into buying a Beatles single. Nice. You know, and, uh, early 1964 so uh they were actually uh, ahead of the curve uh, th- uh, further than me on that um that's awesome uh yeah so is that what you got you into the beatles what was the 45 well it was uh i want to hold your hand nice uh, was the 45 and i saw her standing there was the b-side and uh i didn't really get it until uh, they were on Ed Sullivan the first time in uh, February, early February of 64. And I went from being skeptical and making jokes about them to <laughs> about 30 seconds in, I was completely floored. I had never seen or heard anything like it, you know? Uh, yeah. So that was, uh, I was like, mm, not quite 10 years old. So uh, the, the world changed for me. That's awesome. Yeah, and I, I can relate to what you were saying about uh, AM radio because I have those memories. Of, I was born in 61, so I have similar memories of listening to a wide range of music on AM radio that 
you know, just made an impression on me at a young age. Yeah, and what I, you know, what I was going, what I was trying to say earlier about radio, AM radio in Memphis was white and black, you know. Yeah, oh, right. It was pretty segregated, right? You know? you know, and part of the reason of that was for not to make excuses by, by any means, but part of it was target audiences. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the uh, black radio stations were far uh, more hip and uh, amazing, uh, even back then. Um, WDIA and uh, WLOK were, you know, huge, huge uh, stations. They were playing. So at the same time, I'm listening to, let's say, uh, Elvis Presley and then uh, morphed into the British Invasion, you know. Uh -huh. uh, they were playing like uh, Stax and, right. uh, you know, Atlantic R&B stuff, you know, um, and rhythm and blues and um, soul music, you know, Motown. Yeah. So we were quite a quite an interesting cross-section because – we had a black housekeeper who basically took care of the kids while my mother went and worked, uh -huh. you know, I think her paycheck paid for her salary. That's wow. about it. But my mother didn't want to get stuck home with the kids <laughs> and be a housewife. So she was in the workforce. And, uh, so this, uh, wonderful black woman, uh, would have that, uh, have the black AM stations on all day long. And yeah. that was my education in a way, you know, I was just going, wow, this is, uh, there's something about this, you know, even even as a kid, you know. That's great. Uh, so I w it was good. It was like the best of both worlds, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And so when you so you needed the visual for the Beatles to to kind of for everything to click into place. Did you what what instrument were you drawn to first when you started to get into maybe thinking, hey, I want to play an instrument or get into this. Well, I mean, uh, I instantly gravitated towards guitar because I didn't even understand what a bass guitar was, <laughs> you know. Uh, right. And uh, that was one of the one of the fascinating part of the fascination is what it, I mean. I knew what a drum kit looked like, you know. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, electric guitars were pretty much you know from outer space to me. <laughs> I didn't know much about them, so it was like you know learning curve trying to figure out not only how they sounded the way they did and you know but uh, how they how do you do that you know yeah. how do you make that work so it was really interesting it was um uh you know it, it, it was um something i was just immediately hooked on you know so, okay, you know so uh, this looks like a good job <laughs> so how did you go about that i mean so you 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 saw the guitars you said hmm that that seems interesting how did you go about you know getting a guitar and 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 learning did you take lessons or did you how did that work yeah i mean it took a couple of years uh well another year basically to convince my parents um to uh invest a little bit because i mean we were really a blue collar working class family it did there wasn't a lot of extra money floating around you yeah know? so uh with four kids and uh uh, finally, my mother uh, saw, so this is like in the beginning of the summer of uh, 65, uh, she saw an ad in the newspaper that said uh, it was a special on guitar lessons, it's like six guitar lessons for $30, you, uh -huh. know, we, you know, six weeks. Right. And so at a music store, and uh, so she sprang for it, and uh, uh, they bought me a, uh, of course, part being in a music store, part of the deal is, they want to sell you. They're going to upsell you, you know, a guitar. Or of whatever, course. You know? uh, but <laughs> she, I think they spent another 30 on a, a really bad acoustic guitar. Um, 
it would barely stay in tune. But it was, they, of course, they wanted to see if I was going to, you know, uh, be over it in a couple of weeks, you know. Yeah. Uh, so that's how it started out. And uh, it was really interesting because, you know, the guy who was teaching the lessons, of course, you go going for the lesson, they, they put like a, uh, $1,200 Gretsch, beautiful Gretsch electric guitar <laughs> that George Harrison plays in your lap yep. to play on the lesson, you know. Planting the seed. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, the guy was like not hip at all. He was like old school and he was, he was teaching me how to quote unquote read music. Uh, <laughs> which is the last thing I was interested in. I was learning by ear faster than he could teach me to read music. So yeah. he was teaching me standards and stuff like that. And that lasted about, I think I took lessons for about maybe five or six months. Uh-huh. And then I was basically learning on my own and not really, it was a waste of money and time. So. Got it. That's cool. So basically self-taught essentially and, and learn by ear. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you take a guitar lesson, uh, they give you a book or yeah. they give back then anyway. Yeah. Now it's online, I'm sure, but yeah. they give you a book that has chords and explains chords and whatever. So once I had the book, you know, I learned like, you know, five or six chords then I was listening to what few I was listening to the radio really because they're playing Beatles stuff nonstop yeah. and trying to figure it out you know uh-huh. just slowly but surely by ear so that that's what was going on so by the Christmas of that year my parents went deep and bought me a um, a really cheap uh, Japanese electric guitar and uh, an amplifier to go with it so uh, I was on my way then that's awesome so did you have did you have so at that time did you have friends that that you could uh, kind of collaborate with or talk about music with or instruments, or was it still too, too, you were still too young and you didn't really have other friends that were into music this way? Well, I had a lot of uh, friends who were into music. Um, none of them were uh, particularly talented or knew how to play. Uh-huh. Uh, I did hook up with a, a guy, a drummer who was an only child and his parents bought him a Ringo kit, Ludwig kit. Oh, and, cool. Uh, he was all right, you know, and uh-huh. uh, his parents were pretty liberal and let us, uh, you know, play loud music in their house, uh, which, you know, lasted a few months. But to him, I met a couple of guys who were actually budding musicians who actually really could kind of play. And uh, they were really, they were in my, really my first band in, in 1966. And how old were you then? Uh, I think I just turned 13. Very cool. And how many piece band was it? Was it four piece or three piece or? Yeah, it was four piece modeled on the Beatles. And <laughs> those two guys I'm still best friends with all these years later. I mean, 54 years later, nonstop with them best friends. So I love it. All of their, they haven't played music in almost that long, you know. That's so cool. I love that. Well, um, so when, so, so you're in a band, um, when did the, the idea of maybe writing your own music come into your head? Well, you know, that's really a funny question because at the time, as a 12 and 13 year old, you know, I assumed that you put a band together, you start writing your songs, you right. know, just like the Beatles did. Right. You know, uh, of course, we were doing Beatles songs and, you know, other British groups and whatever, and uh, eventually some, you know, lame versions of soul music too uh, <laughs> a little further on but yeah from day one i was writing terrible songs but we were playing you know that's awesome um, you know two two chords and you know the truth go. so yeah. um, 
Yeah, so I just I just thought that that was what you were supposed to do, you know. I didn't think about just focusing on covering other stuff. It just, you know, anyway. Well, I think it's great that you had that presence of mind at that age, just or that's just the what what you thought because. I mean, I think when I was that age, I I had the other, you know, oh, I better play these cover tunes until I get to a point where, I, I don't know. I mean, I, that was my thought process, but I think it's cool at that age, at 13, that you're like, yeah, well, you're in a band, you write your own songs. Right, right. I think that's cool. So um, from this band, where did you go musically? Well, just what it, you know, one person or another left, and another came in, and uh-huh. it was ongoing for years. You know, we uh, finally, my last year of high school, um, met a couple of guys who had moved to Memphis from Houston, Texas, um, and uh, a couple of brothers, and uh, they were in my uh, high school graduating class. So one of them was. We we're about, all about the same age, but they, they were a year apart. And, uh, one of the guys who was a drummer um, uh, graduated the year after we did. But anyway, uh, they were amazing musicians. I mean, way ahead of anybody else I played with. So this is in like 71, I guess, you know, we uh-huh. hooked up and with a couple other guys and uh, had their first, what I would call my first uh, semi-professional band. And, um, uh, and their names were uh, Randy Hampton. It was a uh, guitarist um, and uh, John Hampton, who was the drummer, and he went on to be uh, part owner of Arden Studios uh, uh. later on in the years and uh, amazing uh, Grammy-winning uh, record producer. Very cool. So, yeah, he passed away a few years ago, unfortunately. Oh, but, man. Uh, Randy and I are still friends. Again, you know, lifelong friends. Um, but yeah, that was a great band and that kind of morphed into another four piece band that was really the first truly professional band, uh, that I had going and that was in 73 or so. That's so great. Do you think being around those other musicians helped up your game in terms of, you know, realizing, Hey, these, these guys seem really professional and did that, did you kind of glean some of that, uh, in, in your work ethic or the way you approached your music? Well, you know, in, in my case, um, in the bands that I've, pretty much all the bands I've been in, come to think of it, I've pretty much been the leader, you know, the one who put everything together, uh-huh. uh, sometimes by default, but sometimes by design. And, and uh, you know, so when you're leading a band where you're the only one or maybe there's two out of four of you who can actually really play and, and you know, move forward you know, uh, in terms of what you can do, your abilities, and you know, stretch, can stretch, you know, and play better and better. When you're you're carrying a big load there, yeah. And when you hook up with two or three other guys who are like on your level musically, um, and can really add, you don't have to show them everything to do. You Got know it. What I mean, it really was like that prior, prior to that, um, and it makes it a lot easier, and you you, you uh, end up enjoying it more. And, and being more creative because the, the basics are not on you anymore, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. That not, yeah, you're not carrying the, the whole load and you feel like you can share it out more with the other musicians in the band. Yeah, it's more collaboration, you know? Yeah. That was my first experience with that after a number of years as a kid, as a teenager, uh-huh. you know, just kind of being, being the band, you know? Yeah. Cool. And so, so is that kind of your 
your first connection to Arden Studios is is the collaboration with those musicians, essentially. We we definitely pushed the envelope uh, in every direction, you know. So that was that was a very rewarding aspect. It was finally rewarding on a, a creative uh, level, you know. It started it was the beginning of that. Yeah. yeah. And then so um, when, moving up, I guess from this, when did you start? Uh, when did you feel your songs were getting better as you were writing? Oh, well, that was a while, I guess. I yeah. mean, I really, I continued writing for every band that I had and the songs gradually got better. And, and part of that is because they just had so much room to get better. They were so <laughs> bad in the first place. Yeah. So, you know, gradually, you know, and we, of course, you know, in those days, as well as these days, I guess, in Memphis, but I don't know how it is around the country, but, you know, you had to go out and do four hours. So yeah. we would do an hour of original stuff and, and, you know, three hours of cover stuff. So the trick was to not do covers that everybody else and their mother were doing, you know. So that's that was also a really cool part of it because we really, uh, we did a lot of stuff, you know, that was obvious to us, like Beatles and Bad Finger and, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, the Who and so on, so on. You know, all, all the British Invasion bands, and then as the uh, buckskin jacket uh, phrase phase came in, you know, <laughs> California stuff, Carl Stilson, Nash, and Neil Young, and all that stuff. You know, it just morphed each each fad that came came through, and then was back to the English groups, Tim CC, and Yes, you know, right. some of that prog rock stuff. You know, which is even more challenging. And Todd Rundgren in several of his faces. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it was, it was, we were not the the band that was going to go out and do uh, Almond Brothers and Leonard Skinner and, you know, what they call Southern Rock. It just wasn't our thing. Got it. So, so what what the end result of that is back in the early 70s, it set us apart, you know, for better or worse, you know. So people knew that they'd come and hear us, they wouldn't hear exactly the same thing that, you know, a dozen other bands were doing in town, you know, so. Yeah, what was the reaction of of the audiences there hearing that music? Was were they receptive to that kind of stuff as opposed yeah, to the? It was Skinner? amazing. It was amazing, really, looking back on it because you know we just thought because we were a good band that people were going to like us. It didn't we played what we wanted to play within reason? Uh-huh. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't play anything was that was bad. We just played a lot of stuff that that was a bit obscure for the average, you know. Uh, uh, Southern rock listeners certainly, yeah. But they enjoyed it because we, because of our attitude, and because we were a really good band. Yeah. So it kind of, kind of drew them into it. And then uh, a lot of people that I became friends with at the time, uh, you know, because of those gigs, uh, it turned their heads a little bit. You know, they kind of went, "Oh wow, I, did, I never heard this before. I love this," you know, that kind of thing. So. Uh, it's all it's all the same ball of wax, you know. You just try to keep it interesting for yourself, and hopefully, hopefully that uh, you know that translates to to people who come to hear you. You know. Yeah, but I think that's so cool because I mean that's that's all like the stuff you described that you like playing. That's all the stuff I was drawn to in my youth. I'm, I'm I was born and raised in Seattle, so it's you know a different vibe. But um, I think it's cool that the discovery factor of a band like you guys playing this stuff that wasn't the expected stuff in that region and people like you're saying people coming up going oh cool I'll, I'll have to check that out that out you know yeah yeah I mean it, was, it wasn't like an ironclad law 
that we lived by. It was just, we were, you know, our philosophy and mine, especially, it's always been, if I'm bored and I'm not entertained, <laughs> you know, then we're gone. Yeah. It's all over. Cause you know, cause that's, that's where it starts, you know? Uh, so, you know, the idea is you're, if you've got a good band and you can communicate with the audience with, uh, good material, whether it's your own material or other material, that's the key to the whole thing. It's so obvious. Yeah. Know? Yeah. I, I totally hear you. Um, so your songs were getting better, uh, mid to late seventies. Talk a little bit about, um, maybe in your mind, are there certain songs that, that started to shift your, your brain to say, Hey, I'm writing better songs now noticeably, or what, or was it that obvious to you or, or was it a much more gradual process? Well, it was probably a, a bit gradual. You know, by the time we got to, you know, 73, uh, 74, and I had this great band, um, I wanted to record. I wanted to do a record. You know, yeah. That's the natural thing that you always want to do and, and record your original stuff. So by, I would say, uh, middle of 74, um, I was. I felt like I was starting to writing some write some pretty good songs, and at the same time, I was. I'd been friends with Jody Stevens, German big star, for a while, uh -huh. and uh, uh, watching them progress, and then at that point, uh, fall apart. And uh, and Jody and I uh, ran into each other and had a conversation, and decided that we would uh, try to write some songs together. Let's let's see. And he had the connection at Arden Studios. Right. So if we could come up with some material that we thought was good, then we could record there for free, you know, uh, do some demos. Uh -huh. So that was, you know, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> so that happened in early 75. And, you know, we, we wrote and, uh, well, actually, I had a couple of songs I'd written and then we co-wrote one and he had another one that uh, he had written. So we cut those four songs and uh, brought in some great musicians and, uh, did that in the early spring of '75, uh, and that was my first truly professional recording experience. I've done a, done demos at a couple of studios back in '72 and '73, but uh, nothing came of it. They were pretty lackluster. Uh -huh. uh, but but if so anything, one led to another. You know, once that happened, and that was right at the time that the band I had was falling apart. People were going back to school. Same old story. You know, I got to get a job. Right. You know, uh, and um, so it just kind of led to me writing a bunch of songs, uh, a few with Jody and 75, but uh, I started writing uh, that year like I'd never written before. I mean, they were, I mean, they were all keepers. That's cool. So um, um, many of them ended up on my first album. So um, that's how that kind of got to the point where I felt confident that what I was writing was uh, was good enough. Yeah. That's cool. I mean, do, yeah. I mean, is it kind of, what do you attribute kind of being that prolific at that time period is, is just noticing that you're writing better music or, or what was the inspiration, I guess it's cause it sounds like the band was kind of falling apart. What was the mode, you know, what was the inspiration? Well, I fell in love with this uh, incredible woman uh -huh. uh, and we were kind of we were kind of off and on for a few years. Right. And in '75, uh, while I was, but was in the middle of working with Jody, she kind of came back into the picture, and we ended up uh, getting married. Oh. In, uh, August of '75. 
Okay. And uh, I was ecstatic. I was inspired by, you know, this great love, you know. Got it. First time, I mean, I had, well, let's say more than a few girlfriends along the way. But, <laughs> uh, you know, I was like almost 22, and, and um, uh, this was this is a real deal. Um, and so a lot of the, the songs I'm talking about were inspired by her, you know. Got it. Um, and that relationship. So... I was part of it, and the other part of it, the musical end of it, was that I was inspired uh, to kind of compete with what Jody had done before with Big Star. Oh, in, okay. In a way. There was a certain level of it, the quality of their material was just astonishing. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and along the way, when I met Chris Bell through Jody, I started to understand pretty quickly that it was, a lot of that was him. Yeah. Uh, at least for the songs that I really loved of theirs. Yeah. So I was really inspired by all of those things all at the same time. And um and so um yeah, I mean I started writing songs that, that were popping up quickly and, and almost completely there. It's like they where did I steal this from? But, you know, <laughs> you know. Uh so anyway, it was just a, a watershed year, nineteen seventy five and uh uh, it led to us, uh, Jody and I doing another set of demos with Andy Rural Alden. Yep. Uh, we came to Memphis and produced them. And, uh, and then we, it was directly after that, we, he and I put together, uh, Jody and I, a band with Chris Bell. And uh, that band played the first, probably December of that year through, uh, the first half of 76, played live. Uh, did but the gigs were like now now disco comes into play uh, the scene so right it's like and, you know talk about butting your head up against southern rock when you're, <laughs> when you're butting your head up against southern rock and disco oh my gosh you're not going to work yeah so it was pretty desperate so that band dissolved but um, and, you know and I just kept you know pulled a couple of other guys in including John Hampton again on drums and we played for a while so it was just kind of going downhill live because incredible bands but just you know could not get booked man uh, so anyway that's what led me to uh, new york and connecticut in 77 to right right advantage of my one offer to yeah. do an actual album of my own right yeah and uh so that's what fascinates me is just listening to you talk in other interviews and reading interviews you seem like you're very philosophical and pragmatic and kind of optimistic or, or, or that type of person. Did you ever, uh, you know, during all of this stuff, did you ever just say, screw it, I'm not going to do music anymore. This is too much of a hassle or, but it seems like you just soldiered on in spite of, you know, all the obstacles. Well, you know, these uh, Australian guys I met a few years ago ended up doing a documentary film about my uh, story. Yeah. Uh, they had an interesting phrase uh, from day one. Uh -huh. uh, they call it they call it the musical disease, <laughs> and and that's pretty some pretty much sums it up because it's like it's like an addiction. You just you can't quit. You right. know? And there's so many people that feel that have that going on. Not necessarily a negative thing, but it kind of blinds you to reality sometimes. You know. Yeah. Um, that's that's the way I take it anyway. I you know my my choice. My entire life is, is okay, get a day job and do this thing part time uh -huh. or just struggle ahead somehow and you keep your, you know, keep your focus on what you what you want to do and what you feel like you're, you're compelled to do. 
in music, you know. So that's just um, that. That's the way I've always been, uh, for better or worse, you know. I don't, don't ask me why. It's just <laughs> probably a little bit of selfishness in there, I guess. I don't know. Well, I think it's I think it's interesting, and I think it's I I kind of dig it because I've I've have several friends who are musicians, lifelong musicians that never gave it up, and as you say, they either just adapted one way or the other, but it's just something they can't shake, you know, or like, I mean, I, I'm, a, I've played guitar my whole life and been in bands and I still do that. So I can relate to that, um, to a large degree. Um, but I just thought, um, it was interesting because I mean, you've gone through a lot of crap, you know, in your musical career and, and, but I, I love the fact that you just still sound philosophical about it and optimistic and, and you're creating music to this day and performing and, um, yeah, I want to talk about your partnership with uh, Vicki Loveland. Yeah. How did that come about? Well, right there. Well, you know, um, it's, it's, it's just so wild uh, in a way. You know, uh, I we kind of were in separate bands. She had her band. I had mine. This is in the, you know, I would say circa 1982, you know, uh -huh. three in Memphis. So after I come back from the Northeast and started another band with a bunch of guys, a band that they call Good Question. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, uh, I was not the leader of, uh, which was beautiful to me for the first time <laughs> I was in a great band, and I wasn't all on my shoulders. Yeah. And, and then that lasted about five months, and the leader of the band had to leave. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> so there of I course. Again. Of course. But that, but that was, it was fine, but the point is that we played Vicky had her band, which was called Secrets. Oh. And, uh, and good question. We played the same venues, so we were like ships passing in the night. Uh -huh. And uh, one time, uh, at the, they had a club here called Solomon Alfred's okay. in the 80s. And it had it was a huge club, and it had a, uh, a big, you know, kind of uh, uh, big uh, venue in the, in the back of the building, a big room with a big stage, and for basically concerts and local bands played there too, but a lot of touring acts came through. Uh -huh. Then in the front room, they had a smaller stage for kind of lesser known bands or local bands to play. You know? So our band started off in the front room and, and moved quickly to the back room because we brought really big crowds. Um, and then one night uh, we were playing in the back room and in and, and the big room and uh, we took a break and I kind of, uh, I was sitting in the dressing room and I heard this other band playing up front and there was this woman singing like I'd never heard before. I went, who in the hell is that? <laughs> you know? So we yep. walked up there and uh, there she was, you know, fronting this band. It was a good band, you know, uh, and she was singing her butt off. Very cool. Like, oh my God. And, uh, and so, you know, we, I, we didn't even meet. We had to go back and, play our next set and never did meet and uh, fast forward about 10 years and you know that was a time where I was you know uh, trying to keep a lot of plates spinning at once trying to make a living and right. uh, playing live music was one of them and doing uh, you know jingle sessions you know commercials singing oh. uh, those and, and they had a big that, there was a big presence in Memphis at the time of doing those had several studios that specialized in those for our places all around the country Cool. And I was, you know, booked for one of those sessions and I walked in and the person I was singing with was Vicki Loveland, uh -huh. you know. 
Very and cool. That's the first time I think we actually ever met, you know. Right. Uh, so that's probably about 1990, something like that. So then, you know, it was like ships passing in the night. We'd, we'd run to each other every year or two, you know, on a session or just in passing at some event or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, and so uh, fast forward to the last version of Good Question that I put together in 2011. Uh, which is a long story I won't go into, but uh, okay. kind of, you know, it kind of started one way, and one of the guys had to leave for health reasons, but one, the other lead singer. Oh, okay. And so I'm going, okay, and you know, what are we going to do? We actually had gigs booked. Oh. And so also that same year started playing solo at a place called Mortimer's, which, uh, which is a restaurant bar here that's owned by Sarah Bell, one of Chris Bell's sisters. Oh, cool. And I. Just been playing there a few weeks, and it was right after. It was just, you know, I think right before New Year's, going into 2012, and I'm sitting there uh, on the on the bar stool, you know, playing my guitar and singing, and in through the door comes Vicky Love, you know, <laughs> and I went wow, you know, and, and she wasn't there to see me. She had no clue. She's being a, a good friend for you know after Christmas, you know, dinner. Uh-huh. So the the light bulbs went off a couple of days later, uh, and I thought, well, you know, maybe I should get in touch with her uh, and see if she's busy. I know she must be. You know, she's so great. I mean, she's got to be, you know, covered up with work. Right. And she had, had a son, young son and everything, too. And uh, uh, so I just, you know, I actually had to contact her through Facebook because I didn't have her number. Got it. And uh, turns out she was wide open. She had just left uh, a long-time band she'd been in, and she was looking for something interesting to do. So she came in to that last, the last gasp with Good Question as the other singer. And a few months later, we started writing. I said, I found out that she had never done a record of original material under her own name. Oh, wow. Never. And she, this is a woman who's, who's sung with, like Albert King. Oh my gosh. And, uh, you know, the funk, but she toured Japan with the funk, funk brothers. Very cool. Town. And I mean, it, it just goes on and on. Right. Her, her, uh, uh, her history. Uh, and, uh, and I, I was floored. I said, you kidding me. So I thought, okay, let's try to write a song together. Next thing you know, it's, it's January, 2013. And we're, we're recording our first album together. That's so cool. Uh, and we co-wrote all the songs, and, and it took us a few weeks to actually pull it together and bring in great musicians. And so now we're, you know, seven, almost eight years later, um, and uh, actually, yeah, eight years later since uh, we first started working together, and uh, we're, we've just finished our third album. You know, so it's a pretty remarkable uh, collaboration for me. That's awesome. I love that story, too, that you guys kept bumping into each other and finally... Uh, things fell into place. Well, you know, there was a chemistry there waiting, waiting to happen. Yeah, I don't think either one of us thought about it ahead of time. We were just like, okay, well, well why not? Let's just see what happens. And then after we worked together doing some gigs, it's like the chemistry was really apparent. And uh, then, I, you know, like I said, when I found out that she'd never had a, an actual album, you know, with her name on it, that right. She had written or co-written songs. I thought, well, we got to fix that. <laughs> yeah, I've seen videos of you guys playing, and it, you guys definitely have a chemistry, and I love your voices together. It's it's very cool. Thank you. I really dig it. Well, Van, man, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today. I, I 
I really learned a lot about uh, what I wanted to, which is your early years and, and, uh, your story has just captivated me as it's captivated a lot of other people. And I just want to thank you for taking the time to chat with me today. Well, thank you, Rick. Uh, I, I wish you luck on this and, uh, uh, you know, if you have any other questions, just, uh, let me know. For sure. Thank you so much, man. And I, yeah, I look forward to talking to you in the, in the future. Well, it's same here and, uh, and, uh, keep playing. All right, man. You too. Thanks. All right, buddy. See ya. Bye. Hey, thanks so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed that. Uh, look for hidden grooves on social media and wherever you listen to podcasts and until next time.